The flood it's pre- prediction, it's kind of a prophetic message about the weather for next week, so uh, something to look forward to. Um, <laughs> it's great to be here. I'm actually preaching for the next two weeks, so I won't be at West Point, and um, some of you may have noticed on the website that Ian down at 502 has been doing a series entitled Not Just for Kids. You know, one of the things which happens to a lot of us, and it happens to me as you grow up, is you, you come across stories over and over again, and, and Noah in the Flood is one of these stories that you just, you just know it like the back of your hand, you know what's going to happen, you know what kind of a message it's going to bring, and actually what tends to happen is you, you gloss over what God is really trying to say. And one of the things I love about the Bible is it's full of um, gripping stories with messages which are relevant to us, which talk about God's greatness and which is all about establishing his kingdom. But when we come to stories like Noah and the Flood, we often tell them in perhaps confusing or ways which misrepresent the truth in there. When, when we, Ian and myself, spoke to Matt about kind of speaking about these kind of things, he said, you're going to need to do some reading. You're going to really need to get into what God is saying here and, and unpick. So he, he gave us some reading. Here it is. It's the big Bible storybook. There it is. It's full of great pictures and, and puppets. And Matt said, you're, you're going to need to get into this. And No, we're going to use some things from here, um, some, some key verses. I'm just going to grab a Bible as well because I'm, I'm going to need a real one as well. This is, this, this, is, this is what we grew up knowing, and this is actually the meat of what we need to get into. Um, and so we're going to have kind of five points taken from the big Bible storybook. I don't actually need to read it. I read that earlier, memorized it, so it's fine. Um, messages I want us to take away. Okay, so we, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn into Genesis 6, and we're going to look at how the story generally always starts in the big Bible storybook, but also in our Bibles here this morning, right at the beginning of the, the book, page 4. Look at that, page 4. Um, do you know the stories often start, let's see if we can get this, is this working at all? There we go. Start like this. All the storybooks start with, it's going to rain. Noah is a man, and God says, Noah, build an ark because it's going to rain. But all of the storybooks we see of the children who are kind of reading it and learning it as they're growing up, they avoid the reason as to why it's going to rain. Because there is a reason, and we find that in chapter 6 of Genesis. And we're going to read verses 1 to 6 together says this, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in them, in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days And also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they both bore children to them, they were mighty men who were old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and and that every intention of, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart." These verses in Genesis 6 introduce the, the people that Noah was trying to do life with. And they were a people who had forgotten God, a people who, instead of trusting in God's wisdom, 
decided to trust in their own wisdom and do what was right in their eyes. And after hundreds of years, it seemed obvious that the people of the land presumed that they didn't need God. And by the time that Noah was living, it says that they were attempting to interbreed with the Nephilim. And they, these are thought to be kind of giants who lived, kind of people with their own godly powers, but actually were probably more likely uh, impersonators of God, demonic kind of creatures. And it, it says that they were trying to interbreed with them, trying to coax people into thinking that they could be gods as well. And so life in those days doesn't get much more chaotic than that. And it's such a long time ago, we can kind of feel a little bit of a disconnect. And the children's stories kind of gloss over the fact that there was all this kind of disparity, this kind of depravity and wickedness going on, and just says that it's going to rain. It's just going to rain. But how does what was going on in Noah's day compare to what's going on in our day? So in the UK, at this very moment, about 2% of our population will be in Bible-believing Jesus following churches, just 2%, and it's, it's, not a, it's not a big number. And it only seems we need to glance at the news, although the news this week's been somewhat kind of, had a bit of a respite with the Olympics, but if you glance at the news and look at some of the stories and how our behavior in our world is fairly destructive, we're living in a place which is away from God. There's messy relationships, there's abuses of power, there's angry outbursts, there's greed for money, people who are too lazy to do the right things. And how is the earth that Noah was walking any different to the earth that we're walking? One of the photos to come out in the news this week is this one here, if I can get a little bit of distance issues here. There he is. Um, This is a a picture of Omran Dakhnish. He was a, a Syrian boy who was pulled from the rubble of his own house. And for me, it just into perspective, again, the depravity of our society we live in, that a boy is going to have his home bombed out in a country which has been destroyed by powers trying to grasp hold of what's going on in Syria. And so when we compare the, the world which Noah was living in and the world which we live in, I think actually they're pretty close in terms of the, the distance they have from God. And, and that's when, when we read verse 6. In chapter 6, it kind of really puts it in perspective. It says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So God was the God who spoke life into us. He was the God who made Adam and Eve as the centerpiece of his creation, as the image of himself. And then it says there that the distance was so great between man and God that he regretted he ever make made man. That's a, a pretty huge thing to say. You know, my, my daughter can sometimes wind me up, but I, n- at no point have I got, oh, I regret ever making you. D- 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 I've not got to that stage, and hopefully I never will, but the depravity of Noah's culture was such that God said, I regret ever making them. Perhaps God's kind of heart was demonstrated a little bit by Jesus as well as he approached Jerusalem towards the end of his life in, in, the, in the, the city set apart for his worship where his temple was. 
Jesus saw the temple, and he saw that the people of God were so far away from him, the Bible says he just wept. Jesus wept because people had drifted so far from where God intended them to be. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, a place designated for the worship of God. The temple was in Jerusalem, a place designated for the worship of God, and the distance was so great that God wept. He regretted making them. But verse 6 isn't the end of the story. It doesn't just end with God's regret at what he had done. Verse 7 continues. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. These, are re- these words are really tough. I will blot out man because I've regretted ever making them. And what we try and do with a story like this, and I know I try and do it, is I try and place a disconnect between what was going on in Noah's life and what's going on in our world now. I say, well, that was thousands of years ago when they were trying to interbreed with demon-like giants. And actually, I'm very different. I'm living in a Western society, and it's, it's very good, and inherently, I'm good. And what, what we tend to do is create a level of moral superiority that we are not as corrupt as the people in Noah's days were, and therefore, do you know, God's not going to blot me out. I don't, I'm not in that category. And we have a kind of superiority. We, we do it day to day. We say, well, we're not as bad as a murderer. We're not as bad as a, a pedophile or, or someone who, who goes about their life like that. And we kind of put ourselves on a pedestal and say, well, I'm fine. Me and God, we're, we're fine. That's, that's it's Old Testament stuff, isn't it? Well, actually, Paul says this. He says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the reality, that all of us have sins. Compared to God's standard, all of us fall short. The people in Noah's day fell short of God's standard. The people in the temple in Jerusalem fell short of God's standard. And standing here on this platform, I fall short of God's standards. And verse 1 to 6 shows us what a mess the world was in. And verse 7 shows us that we are guilty and in need of forgiveness. And we need to face up to the fact that our world is broken, that it's our fault, and we deserve to be judged for it. And that's the reason it rained. And that's why God sent the rain. He said, there is a punishment for the things you have done wrong, and so it rained, and it rained, and it rained, because God is a just God. We must remember that the people outside of the ark were drowning because of their disobedience and their sin. But if, but if these people in Noah's day were so deserving of God's judgment, one of the questions people often ask is, why did God wait so long to judge them? Why were there hundreds of years that God wanted, waited? And the answer is, is because God wants us to be saved. God wants us to turn to him and to find our salvation in him. Do you know, before the Israelites entered the promised land, he waited nearly 400 years for the Amorites to turn to God, to give them a chance to repent and kind of worship him. Sodom and Gomorrah, the amount of times God said, if you find a righteous person, find a righteous person, I will save it. And you know, Peter, when he writes one of his epistles, he picks up on the imagery of um, 
of Noah, and he says this in 1 Peter 3. He says, they, that's those who are living away from God, deliberately overlook that fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, that's his creation, and that by means of these words that then existed was deluged in water and perished. So he's talking about the flood there. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And that's talking about the final judgment. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is but is patient towards you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why did God wait so long for the floods? And why has Jesus not yet returned to judge his earth? Because he wants us to turn to him in repentance and worship him. And so our stories, our children's stories always start with this. It's going to rain. One of the things we also see is this, that Noah Oh, we've got some distance issues here. Noah was a good man. It, all these stories, you pick him up and says, Noah was a good man. You actually see him uh, with a nice beard, his family all around him. It's all very cozy. In fact, um, this is what the films thought he might look like. There he is. Russell Crowe in the 2014 hit film, Noah. I'm not sure he was um, such a good man there. And that's why when we, we get to verse 8, right at the end of that, re, that kind of passage which kind of talks about why God needs a flood, and we see this verse 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is our kind of but God moment in this story. If we, if we honestly assessed ourselves against kind of the people living in Noah's day and we, we measured ourselves up, it looked bleak. And so when we read this, we say, oh, yes, there is salvation. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. What great news. But you know, our, that verse 9 is, is perhaps one of the most misinterpreted verses in this story. Um, that Noah was found favor in the eyes of the, the Lord. And it might seem on first glance, and this is often the way that our children's stories tell it, that Noah was a good man and therefore God was going to save him. And actually, that's not the case. God didn't give him a heads up and say, Noah, I've looked across the whole earth, and, and you're the one man who's good and righteous, and do you know what? I'm going to build a boat, and because I want to save you only, I'm going to put you on that boat. Um, and if we were to draw a moral lesson from this, you'd go away from this morning going, right, I just need to be a good man like Noah, and God will save me. And actually, that's not what this is saying, because Paul says, no one is righteous. And you know what? That includes Noah. No one is righteous. So how do we reconcile the words here in Genesis 6, which say that Noah was a righteous man, and the words of Paul, which says that no one was righteous? I think the answer is this. Noah was righteous because his righteousness was a gift given by God. It was a gift 
given by God through faith. And like a, a judge in the courtroom, he was guilty of his crimes, but someone else took his punishment. And so although Noah was as guilty as the next guy and in need of forgiveness, he put his trust in God. These words in Hebrews 11 talk about kind of the reason for Noah's righteousness. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes, comes by faith. Was, was Noah righteous because he was a good guy? No. Noah was righteous because he had faith in God. He decided to trust in him. And it also describes Noah as blameless. Blameless. And if you were to look at that Hebrew word and look at the translation there, a better translation would be wholeheartedly Godward. In other words, Noah was a worshiper. He loved to worship God, even though everyone around him in the place that he was doing life had turned their backs on God, Noah was righteous because he had faith in God and he was wholeheartedly Godward and a worshiper. And so we see that Noah was told it was going to rain and we see that Noah was a righteous man. And then we get some instructions given to Noah. It says this, it says that Noah had to build an ark. I've got some plans here for an ark. I'm not sure if there's an extension we can put on this, John, to make this work, because there's some plans coming for an ark at some point. You know, the center point of, of God's rescue story um, of Noah was he had to make an ark. We, we all know that Noah was a worshiper, not because he may have sang lots of songs, but because he was a little bit crazy. Noah was living in a desert, and he was given instructions by God to go and build a huge boat in a place that it had never rained. Are we there? There we go. There we go. So building up, there's some plans they, they reckon the ark may have looked like. And I can imagine what the things people would have said to Noah as he started work. And they reckon that the ark would have taken between kind of 20 and 40 years to make. And people would have been walking past, seeing what he's doing, chopping down all those trees and saying, no, what you're doing is, and he'd have said, oh, God's told me to build a boat because it's going to rain and this whole world's going to be wiped out. And I can imagine people just going, no, you, you're crazy. You are, you're out of your mind. It's never rained, no. We're living in a desert. What, what are you doing? So well, he, he just said, well, God's going to wipe out all of, all of the earth because of their sin. And I can imagine Noah sometimes feeling a little bit kind of bad about himself, a little bit kind of confused about what he's doing. But he just went on about his business 20 to 40 years. That's, that's pretty much like your whole career, 40 years. And he's dedicated it to one thing. Achieving God's plan, building a boat. Do you know, at the University of, of Leicester did a study when Russell Crowe's film came out in 2014 to, to work out whether you could fit all the different species, two by two, on a boat. And they, they calculated that on the boat, 137 meters long as it was and 23 meters wide and about 14 meters high, you could fit about 70,000 different pairs of animals, and he'd have worked long and hard, looking like a complete, complete and utter no, nut job. Why? Because he wanted to serve God, and that's worship, isn't it? Giving his life wholeheartedly, day in, day out, 
no matter what anyone else said, going completely against the culture of the, of the world because God had called him to. And actually, we need to worship like that. We need to worship in a way which doesn't submit to the ways of the world, but instead submits to God's purpose in our life. It says, God, no matter what you call me to, I'm going to choose to worship, just like Noah did. And so he built a boat, a massive, massive boat. Next instruction we see Noah get is this. He says, take two of each animal. Do you know, I spent, I spent a long time looking for the perfect image of what it would have really looked like. You know, a massive boat on the raging waters with all those animals crammed in. And the only realistic kind of image I could come up with was this one. Um, this is, this is, the, this is the, the, the picture that we're, we're painted of what it would have really looked like. Noah, I want you to take two by two animals and they're all going to come lovely and cleanly. They're going to come up the ramp you've built side by side. The monkeys will hold hands because they can. The horses will just have to knock trotters every so often. And actually, that's the picture we get. And actually, it's a little bit distorted. And so by the time we get to, to chapter 7, um, God starts to give some more specific instructions. He says this, Take seven pairs of all the clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are also not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. Now, there was a practical reason that he took two of each animal, a male and a female, because we wanted to reproduce. Once the, the floodwaters have receded, we want all the different species of the earth to be present on the earth. But it also says to take seven of each of the clean animals. Now, this number seven is important here because in Hebrew literature, it kind of signifies completeness. And it, it, it kind of gives us symbolically clean, without blemish, and used for sacrifice to God. He's not just to bring two of each animal for reproductive purposes. He's to bring more animals because at the end of his time on, on the boat, he's to bring them to an altar and he'll slaughter, slaughter them as a sacrifice to God, knowing that blood is the only thing that can um, deal with Noah's sin. And so when we get to chapter 8, and verse 20, and we get to the end of Noah's time aboard this ship, about a year, and he gets off. What does Noah do? It says this, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some, some of every clean and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on and the altar. He had to have extra animals because he had to atone for his sin, and that's the reason he took extra animals onto the boat. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease." The first thing that Noah does as he gets off the boat is to offer sacrifices to God. He, he continues to realize that for the forgiveness of his sins, he needs to act in faith and bring a sacrifice to God. But the reality is that these animals couldn't fully atone for Noah's sin. He needed someone who was more than just a symbol of holiness, more than just a symbol of cleanliness, more than just an animal. He needed a perfect sacrifice. 
He did a sacrifice once and for all. And Hebrews says this, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Noah got off the ark and he offered sacrifices to God, knowing that blood would atone for his sins, but also knowing that in his faith, a once and for all sacrifice was coming. And Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the person in whom we can be fully saved. And Noah realized that, and we need to realize that this morning, that we live in a broken world, that we are broken people, that we are outside the ark by default. That's our default position. But by putting our faith in Jesus, in the one who was the perfect holy sacrifice once and for all, we can be saved. And our, our story always ends, you can see it just in there, a picture of a, a rainbow. We always get to talk about the rainbow in the sky, God's promise. Our story ends when Noah realized he could finally leave here. I can't imagine what it had been like cooped up on a, on a boat for a year with 70,000 pairs of animals, with his family, with the mess, with the noise. I don't know if he even you carry enough food to keep a lion going for a year on a boat. It's all the storehouses of food, all those things. And, and God said this to him. He said, bring out with you every living thing. Do you know, if I was in charge of that boat, all the kind of the, the nice meat would have been slaughtered already and eaten. There wouldn't, some of the, the, the lions would probably have eaten each other. And I just said, look, you just take the goats for a little bit, okay? And just a little bit of peace and quiet. And he says this. He says, bring out with you every living creature is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Now, if you think back just a few chapters back in Genesis, that's exactly what Adam and Eve were charged with doing. He said this, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God's trying to start again here. He's trying to have another go. He wants people to have another chance. He's saying, go out and, and do it again. The, the, the thing, very good thing that Adam was asked to do, so is Noah commanded to do. Go and spread out. But ultimately, sin and death spoiled what was going on, put a stop to what was happening. And so when the waters finally recede, and it looks again all new again, and the, the trees start to grow, and all the, the shrubbery starts to come in. We, we look like we're going to have a new and perfect world. Let's just look at what Noah did. A little bit later on in this story, Noah decides to get himself completely and utterly drunk at a family party. This is, this is the end of Noah's story. He gets himself kind of mind-numbingly drunk, he gets himself naked in front of his, all of his fam family, and he ends up cursing his grandson, who ends up fathering a whole people group who became enemies of God. 
Yeah, Noah was a messed up guy in the end of it. And we look back to where Noah was a good man. Yeah, he may have been good, but actually what made him good and righteous was his faith in God. Noah was still a man full of sin, and that still needed to be dealt with. And I guess that's true for all of us, that even if we've crossed the line of faith, we're, we're still a people prone to sin, and we're still a people who are prone to walk far from God. But thank goodness it's by my faith and not by my works that I'm saved. That by my trust in Jesus, in that there's a better Savior than Noah, and I find that person in Jesus, I'm instead found righteous. And he God promises that he's never again going to flood the, the earth. And he sends the rainbow as his mark of that promise. And so Noah's not just a story for kids. It's not just a, a fairy tale-like adventure where Noah's good and he, God's going out to save Noah. This is a picture of God's salvation for all of us, that we're all fallen short of God's standard that we're all outside of the ark, that we all deserved to be blotted out in God's judgment. But through faith in him, through faith in Jesus, who was our pure and spotless sacrifice, we can be saved once and for all. Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. That's what the message of Noah and the flood leads us to. It leads us to look to Jesus as our once and for all sacrifice. And so three challenges for us this morning as we finish. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never before put your trust in Jesus, you've never kind of, as it were, put yourself inside the boat and say, you know what, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. Maybe today's your moment to say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to live life for you. I'm not a perfect person, I know that, but I'm going to put my faith in you, knowing that your son on the cross paid the price for my sin. Maybe you need to respond to that this morning as we come and take communion a little bit. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time and you've heard this story, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 times. It's probably not unrealistic to be at that kind of level of repetition of this story and you've just become a little bit numb to the messages which are being kind of brought forth here. And I would challenge you, are you a worshipper like Noah worshipped, who amongst, kind of amidst adversity and ridiculousness, put his faith in Jesus, built a boat in the desert and committed his whole life to serving God because he knew that God had a plan. Maybe this morning, you kind of, as we kind of border on that new term, you know, teachers always work on terms and it's always a, a time to start again and for children to start again. Maybe this is a time again for you to go, God, you know what? I want the next 40 years to be about worshipping you with my whole body and my whole mind and going out for you and living the way you want me to live. Maybe it's this morning it's just a chance to say, God, I just need to refocus. God, I just need to align myself again. I've just become a bit numb. I just, just thought I was a good man like Noah. Actually, we're not, but we're made righteous through Jesus' blood on the cross. And so maybe for you this morning, it's, I'm coasting, but I really want to worship like Noah did. And so let's pray, and let's kind of remember that this is a story not just for children, but it's a story for us, and it brings truth, 
which we can live by. Father, I, I thank you that this is a story with power, a story about redemption and salvation. I thank you that your plan was always to, to save Noah, and in him you found a man of faith, a man who put his trust in you. Lord, I would pray that we would be a people who trust wholeheartedly in you. Lord, that where we've kind of watered this story down to just being a nice kind of parable, we would instead find in it truth that through faith Noah was saved. And it's faith in you that we are saved. And Father, would you just remind us of that day we first put our faith in you and that miracle that brought us from death into life. Lord, we want to respond to that. Say, so God, we want to be worshippers of you. We want to be people who, like Noah, gave his whole life for you. Even though he got it wrong and ended his story naked in front of his family, you still saved him. You still went after him. You still pursued him and said, I'm going to give my righteousness to him. And Lord, we worship you because you, through faith you have declared us righteous in your eyes. Lord, if you're people sitting here this morning who've never put their trust in you, I pray you would open their eyes to see that Jesus is the one and only sacrifice who can fully pay the price for the things we've done wrong. Would they see that clearly this morning? Lord, we do pray for our society as well, just like Noah's day where it was broken and messed up. Lord, we pray for our town. We pray for Paul and Bournemouth and Christchurch and for Dorset. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who worship you and like Noah would have people come and say to us, Noah, what are you up to? That they would come to us and say, what are you guys up to? And we can say we are sold out for worshiping Jesus because he is the, the person in whom we found our salvation. And Lord, that would be the mark of the gospel on this church, that we would be a people worshiping you. So God, we ask that your spirit would just come and fall on us now, Lord, that you would open our hearts to, to see you for who you really are, and to recognize that all salvation and righteousness is a gift from you through faith. Amen.